What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can listen on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts. So, again, uh, I'd like to extend a thank you to my good friend, Mike Craddy, who came on uh, Guest Friday last week. Great conversation. Hopefully you all enjoyed that as we were able to talk Bruins' reaction to their uh, moves at the trade deadline um, and just kind of overall thoughts for the rest of the season. I'm very excited to announce that uh, Evan Greasing will be uh, returning to the podcast this week. Uh, You may have seen that on uh, Twitter and on Facebook, but he'll be returning uh, to Guest Friday this week doing a Red Sox season preview, so really looking forward to that. Um, Evan and I had done an episode a bunch of months ago um, as uh, David Ortiz was elected into the Hall of Fame, so, you know, great to be great to have him back. We'll be able to talk about, you know, actual baseball that, you know, is being played spring training and then, you know, games that are coming up for for the Red Sox in uh, about a week plus. So today, obviously, plenty of Uh, stuff with the Celtics and the Bruins, uh, some stuff with the Red Sox, obviously, and then there's some uh, Patriot thoughts that I wanted to get to at the end. Um, And then we got some updates from March Madness and talking about the uh, U.S. men's national team. So uh, without further ado, let's get it going. We're uh, starting with the Bruins today, and things are great. Things are great with the Bruins right now, if you think about uh, the way that they have played specifically the last two games, um, it's been excellent. You know, it's the type of hockey that I think you expect from a team like this and a team that, you know, is very, goes about their business in a very professional way that, you know, you know what you're going to get. Players know what is expected of them and you go out and execute. Now, you know, it's easier said than done to go out and execute really well. You know, I think that oftentimes you can say the right things, you can act the right way, but sometimes the results, you know, don't happen. You know, the Bruins, I think, for their sake, are, are lucky that, you know, the results are coming, that, you know, they're able to score goals more consistently at five on five. And you look and see at the reinforcement or reinforcements that they have brought in and they fit in pretty well. So um, obviously, Mike and I last week talked about the addition of Hampus Lindholm to the Bruins uh, defense core, and it's pretty amazing how uh, seamless the transition has been for for Hampus in his first two games. I would say especially um, against Tampa Bay, he was ex- he was excellent in that game. I think honestly, he may have been the best Bruins player on the ice in that game. And I know that Pasternak scored a hat trick. I'm well aware of that, but I think Lindholm probably made the biggest difference in that game, you know, the way that he was able to, you know, just play so solidly and play really without any, you know, any nerves, you know, and I think he's a guy who has been in the league for a very long time. This is his ninth year in the league. So there's not really a lot in this league that he hasn't seen. You know, I think that he always plays with, that sense of calmness and you even have you even have noticed that in his time in Anaheim you know those of you that that have been able to watch games that he has played it's always so interesting that he just plays with a calmness and plays with uh it plays with you know an edge but it's not an edge like a physical edge like I'm gonna beat you up but it's like he's almost always in the right place at the right time he's very well positioned knows exactly what his role is and I think he fit in perfectly um, in that Tampa Bay game had an assist four shots on goal four hits a block shot um, and was on the ice for over 23 minutes so you know I think as Mike and I said you know he's just such a great defenseman to have that can play on the top pair with McAvoy and can allow McAvoy to take more chances offensively you know that Lindholm can be a good stay-at-home guy, but he's also a guy that can jump up in the rush. And I think, you know, having someone back there defensively can allow Charlie McAvoy to take chances offensively um, and, you know, 
allow him to pinch in the offensive zone, allow him to jump up into the rush, allow him to, you know, get forward to the goal line and do things like that, that, you know, honestly is what gets people excited when they talk about, you know, Charlie's, Charlie's game and how, how good of a skater he is, how well he's able to jump up and produce offensively. So I think that is really the biggest thing, but I think, you know, Lindholm then comes back on Saturday, two shots on goal, three hits, a plus one, didn't factor in the scoring, but again, was really, really solid. And I think, you know, you were going to see that in the playoffs. And I think the Bruins are going to be in a really good spot if, you know, he's someone that is another big time defenseman you can rely on, someone who can play upwards of 23 minutes a night. You know, I think it's, inevitable that Charlie McAvoy is going to play big minutes but I think playing with someone like Lindholm it's going to allow him to not be kind of that guy that the Bruins are relying on on that top pair that they can have someone else that they can lean on to so really great uh great addition of Hampus Lindholm and he's made himself at home you know and I think it's so funny that it's like you've seen him play these two games it looks like he's played for the Bruins his entire career. And I think, you know, just to kind of finish a final thought on the trade deadline, this trade for Lindholm, I think, made a lot more sense than the Bruins trying to go after someone like Jacob Chikrin. And I know that Chikrin obviously is a very talented young player, but you have someone like Lindholm who's played in the league for nine years. You know, he understands what's required. And I think obviously was not going to yield the big return that Chick or it was not going to cost a lot as Chikrin probably would have. Um, but I think Lindholm fits better into this Bruins team than Chikrin would have. And it's, you know, no disrespect to him, but I think, you know, Chikrin's 23, 24 years old. He's still figuring out, figuring it out at the NHL level because he was a guy that came in at 18 years old. So, you know, Lindholm also was a guy that came in young, but I think he's been in the league for nine years. So, you know, it made a lot more sense to, you know, go after someone like that, lock them up long term so that, you know, you can, you can, you know, extend, extend the window of being competitive, you know, which I think is, was a big reason for why they made the trade and why they made the extension. Um, to kind of extend that comp competitive window um, for this team. So Lindholm obviously has been really excellent in his first two games. Someone else that's played really well recently um, is Eric Halla. And obviously I think there were a lot of concerns at the beginning of the year about this signing because I think, you know, you went into the summer thinking that, okay, you know, David Krejci has, you know, you didn't, you honestly didn't know what his decision was. I can't really remember what the timeline was in terms of when he decided to retire. But the thought was the Bruins went into the offseason probably looking for someone that could somewhat in a way replace Krejci. And I think people came out of the signing with Hall, I think, frustrated because he's not a typical second line center. And I'll give you that. You know, I think... He's always a guy that's been a solid player, nothing really spectacular, you know, had really bounced around since his, you know, first year in Vegas, putting up 55 points, scoring 29 goals. And a lot of people are like, okay, that's not the player the Bruins are acquiring. And I think certainly people were right to be skeptical. And I think people were right based on the first couple months of the season when he really struggled to find a role, and I think this whole team was struggling to find comp find consistency in terms of five-on-five, five. and I think, you know, changing up the lines in January, you know, really changed, a re really changed the outlook of this team, and I think, you know, certainly Hala is not what you would think of as a legit, you know, second line center, but I think based on how well he complements David Craig, David Pasternak, and Taylor Hall, it's fairly obvious that he is a pretty good fit with them. Now, you know, I think naturally people are going to compare 
him with Krejci, and that's exactly what happened when he signed. With it. it was like, okay, can this guy really come in and you know replace David? And I don't think it's not really right. It's not really fair to be like, oh, he's going to come in and replace him. I mean, I think some people were turned off by Sweeney's comments of you know taking it center by committee, and it's like to be fair, it's worked. You know, it's taken a little bit of time, but I think it's worked. You know, you look at someone like Charlie Coyle, who I think started the year as that second-line center. It ended up not really working, and they put someone like Halla there, and I think certainly he's not an elite player by any ter- by any stretch of the imagination, but he fits in really well with Hall and Pasternak, and I think they play well with someone that can play on the rush, someone that, you know, uses their speed or uses their ability in transition. And I think that was one of the reasons why Taylor Hall worked so well with David Krejci last year is, you know, Hall plays with pace, David plays with pace too. But I think, you know, it's pretty obvious that Hall can play with pace too, you know, and that's his game. And I think that's why the Bruins put him in this spot instead of Coyle, because Coyle is a guy who speed is not really what his game is, you know, and I think they've identified what, what Hall can do and what he can do well. And, you know, <laughs> the numbers that he's put up are, are pretty impressive over the last 30, 30 plus games. I think it's 27 points in his last 36, which is, you know, comes out to being about 60 points a season, which, you know, is, is pretty good. You know, David Post- David Krejci had not put up 60 points since I believe 1819 if I'm not mistaken. So is he a perfect replacement? No, absolutely not, but I think the Bruins have found combinations that work and I think that's really all that matters. I think that people got way too hung up in the summer that oh you didn't find a replacement for David Krejci. You failed. Like what are you doing? And I think some of these things take time and I think you know the Bruins felt that signing Halla to that contract made more sense than giving someone like Philip Deneau a long-term contract. Um, and I think, you know, it's, uh, it's a combination that works. At the end of the day, it works. And it really doesn't matter, I think, who is playing between Hall and Pasternak because they're both tremendous offensive players. But I think, you know... It's something that works, and I think that's the biggest thing for this team going forward. And it is interesting that, you know, Halla had a cold stretch right before the trade deadline, had no points in six straight games. And what has he done in the last three? He's put up seven points. You know, had, I believe, had three assists in the Tampa Bay game um, and had a goal and an assist against the Islanders on um, Saturday. Had two assists against Montreal in the game that was right after the trade deadline. So some good good numbers for, for Eric Hall, I think, out of the, the trade deadline. So I think the good news is, you know, maybe he's picked it up. And I think it is interesting that you look at his point total, 32 points. You know, his career year in Vegas, obviously, he had 55 points. Next highest point total of his career was 34. So, you know, this makes it look like he could definitely shatter that you know, previous point high. I don't think he's getting 55 points, but he may come pretty close to somewhere in the mid-40s. So that at least will be something to um, to watch over the next couple weeks. And obviously the Bruins have a huge game tomorrow night against the Toronto Maple Leafs. First time the Bruins have played Toronto, I believe, since November, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so obviously the two teams looked very different back then. You know, you had the the Bruins that I think were still in the midst of trying to find their game. Um, you know, geez, it's like November 6th. It's like I don't even remember what, what anything looked like back then. It's just so interesting. Um, but Toronto, obviously, we know what they can do offensively. We know, you know, how they can score goals in bunches. You know about all the talent that they have. Um, but I'm very curious to see how do the Bruins look defensively in that game. You know, they were pretty solid in that game against Tampa Bay. You know, they allow a shorthanded goal 
for one of those, but I thought defensively they played pretty well in that game. So curious to see how they match up. You know, I think I'll be curious to see what lines the Bruins match up against, you know, the top line of Matthews, Marner, and Bunting. What line do they use against uh, Tavares and uh, Nylander? Very curious about how that game goes, but I think tremendous opportunity for the Bruins to prove that they can absolutely compete with the best teams in the East and uh, I think prove that against Tampa Bay, but they get another huge opportunity um, against a team like Toronto that they haven't seen in months. So very curious to see how the Bruins come out with that game. The Bruins are in the midst of a five, five game homestand. They have Toronto tomorrow, the Devils on Thursday, and then they will welcome the Blue Jackets to the Garden on Saturday. So some good, good opportunity for some home cooking for the Bruins. And, you know, the standings get uh, a lot closer um, thanks to the Bruins uh, playing so well. We'll take a look at the NHL standings later in the podcast. Um, But it's just excellent to see them playing as well as they are. And, you know, Hall has figured it out. Lindholm has played really well. But I'm curious to see, you know, how they perform in the next couple games in the next few weeks before we... Uh, you know, turn the page to the playoffs. So I think that probably will do it for us talking about the Bruins. We're going to talk about the Celtics, and uh, we do have some breaking news into the podcast that is uh, not too good. Uh, I believe that uh, Shams is reporting that Robert Williams has may have a meniscus tear in his left knee. So uh, Rob obviously left last night's game with a left knee contusion, didn't return, but obviously we know now that it's pretty serious. Um, so obviously this is a big, big, this is a, a big deal for the Celtics and really not in a good way. Rob has been, you know, one of their, if not their best defensive player. And honestly, it's been like a top five defensive player in the league this year and, you know, makes this team so much better. By what he can do defensively but what he can do in the offensive end excellent rebounder great at cleaning up misses and you know is always the lob threat he's always a threat to you know make a one highlight real play a game but you know this is obviously um this this could be a crushing blow to the celtics and i think you know certainly they're a team that's still very talented but you know it's um you know, it's not ideal trying to overcome the loss of Rob Williams, who, you know, probably will be out for an for an indefinite period of time. And the timing is not great. The Celtics have seven games left in the regular season and are, you know, really in the midst of playoff seeding that could get very interesting. Um, but obviously, if he's going to miss time in the playoffs, it really changes the it changes a lot for the Celtics, unfortunately. Um Obviously, I don't want to harp on the negative, but, you know, that is breaking news into the podcast. But um, the rest of it is good for the Celtics. Um, Officially, with the Sixers' loss last night and the Celtics' win over Minnesota, they're tied for first place in the East and actually have a tiebreaker over Miami. So, um, okay. We're now getting more reports that Robert Williams will miss several weeks and will be reevaluated later in the season. So that obviously does does not sound good uh, for the Celtics, but the way they've been playing has been awesome, you know, and I think, unfortunately, Robert Williams has been a big part of that. But Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have been unbelievable. You know, Marcus Smart has really has, has been great. You're getting some great offensive production off the bench from Derek White and Peyton Pritchard. Um it's just they're playing the, the the playing so well, you know, at the perfect time. And I think, you know, having them in first place with a tiebreaker over the Miami Heat is pretty amazing when you look at, you know, where they were just a few months ago, twenty seven and seven in their last thirty four games, which is, you know, pretty remarkable. And I think just the turnaround is even more remarkable that this was a Celtics team that really was going nowhere and something changed and the Celtics, you know, came in, came out firing against the Phoenix Suns in that game right before the new year. And they've really never looked back since. Um, So I think, 
you know, definitely a team that I think are legitimate contenders. Now, I think that the injury to Rob, Rob Williams complicates things a little bit um, because now it seems the Celtics will be leaning heavily on Daniel Tice and Al Horford, which is not ideal considering Horford's 35. Um, he has been really, really good this season, but I think part of the reason he's been so good is because he's not been relied upon a lot to, you know, score the basketball, to play well defensively. He's played great defensively, but I think, you know, it's uh, really not ideal because I think the Celtics were fairly thin at the big man position, but now, you you know, you lose Rob Williams and he's, you know, your best big. So it's going to be curious to see how the Celtics can, um, you know, adapt to this because things have been going really, really well, but I think... There's always going to be some some adversity, but I think with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, with the way that they've been playing, it's, you know, makes you believe in this team. It makes you believe that, you know, they really can overcome anything. So I think obviously this is tough news, but I think the Celtics will be able to push on. You know, I think big game tonight, obviously, against Toronto um, in, in Canada. So the big opportunity for the Celtics to prove that, you know, losing Rob Williams is not a death, death blow. Um, this is an interesting game because I think it's very possible that you could see the Celtics in Toronto playing in a first-round series. So I'm very curious to see how the Celtics play tonight on the second of a back-to-back. Um, obviously, without Rob Williams, you know, could be an issue. Toronto's got, got good size, and they always seem to give the Celtics trouble. But, again, tremendous opportunity for the Celtics to... Um, come out and prove that they're still legit even while losing one of their best players. Um, One of the other things that I wanted to touch on, and obviously I did a couple moments ago when I mentioned uh, Derek White and Peyton Pritchard, um, but it's the bench scoring. And I think that the two of them have particularly been really, really good off the bench, and that's not even mentioning Grant Williams, um, who honestly I think should be in the conversation for most improved player in the NBA and I'm not even kidding like I honestly think like the way that he has improved himself in terms of shooting what he can do defensively can guard you know a lot of those bigger guys and do pretty well at it I think that he's he's turned it around and I think those three guys you know as much as you want to talk about Jalen Brown Jason Tatum um, and what they can do offensively those three guys on the bench, off the bench, I think could be the difference in terms of whether the Celtics go really far and maybe even go to the NBA Finals, or if they don't. You know, I think those three guys playing at a high level and playing at the level they're playing right now, I don't think that there's anything the Celtics team can't accomplish. And I think, you know, giving you consistent scoring off the bench, um, and obviously Grant Williams will probably be put into a larger role now with Rob Williams being hurt, but I think having those three guys off the bench scoring, playing defense, and doing the little things that are required to do well in the playoffs, I really, again, think that there's no ceiling to what this team can accomplish. And I think Pritchard himself has been awesome, you know, shooting the lights out. And I think proving to the Celtics that, yes, trading Dennis Schroeder was the right thing to do, and I'm going to step up my game. And honestly, he's playing better right now than he did last season. I didn't even think that was possible a couple months ago, you know, and he's on the bench playing 10, 12 minutes at night and Schroeder's out there walking the ball up the floor. And it's like, are the Celtics ever going to let Pritchard really kind of realize his potential? And that's exactly what they've done over the last few weeks. And he has, you know, made that payoff handsomely. So it's an exciting time for the Celtics. Obviously, losing Rob Williams right now really hurts this team, but I think this team has been playing with a swagger and a confidence and, you know, a willingness, a willingness to play together, a willingness to be together and play together that I think leads you to believe that, yes, losing Rob Williams is tough, but I think that this team, you know, should be able to, you know, I don't want to say overcome because obviously Rob's skill set is pretty good, but they have the horses, and I think they have the the will and the ability to, 
you know, make noise in the Eastern Conference playoffs, you know, even if Rob is going to miss a, a chunk of time. You know, I guess I'd be surprised if he plays the rest of the season, but hey, who knows? Um, if the Celtics go deep enough, maybe he can return at some point, but I think Rob is a guy that I think you want to be very careful of, um, you want to be very careful with. So looking at the Celtics and their upcoming schedule, obviously they got the Raptors tonight in Toronto, and then the Celtics will come back home and take on the Heat, in which will probably be their most important game of the season to this point, you know, as they're tied with the Heat for first place in the Eastern Conference. Um, obviously, that game is going to be massive in terms of, you know, what it decides for um, home court advantage, you know, seeding. I think the Celtics, as much as, yes, I don't really want them to play to a certain matchup or avoid a certain matchup, I would really like them to not play the Nets in the first round. I just will say that. But um, obviously, you don't want to be playing to a matchup because that can get really dangerous. But um, obviously, you want the Celtics to continue to play basketball at a high level and, you know, hopefully peaking at the right time. So Raptors tonight, Heat on Wednesday, and then the Celtics will play the Pacers and the Washington Wizards to close out the week, and that will actually close out their home schedule. They have three road games to finish the regular season next week. So I think that probably, probably will do it for the Celtics this week. Um, I think one of the last things I was going to mention is, you know, the Celtics are playing well, but they're dominating teams. You know, dominated Utah, beat them by 28, beat the Nuggets by 20. You know, it's pretty, pretty impressive. And Minnesota, that's not a, that's not a bad team either. You know, that's not a team that is the typical, you know, Minnesota team that is kind of mediocre and average. No, that team is good and that team will make the playoffs. Remains to be seen whether they will, you know, be in the play-in or not. But I think Carl Anthony Towns, Russell. And Edwards, you know, is a pretty good combination. Russell did not play well last night, but, you know, I think they're a team that is, you know, not a team to be like, oh, it's the Timberwolves. They're, they're, they're not good. So I think that will do it for the Celtics. We'll jump back to the NBA at the end of the podcast and take a look at uh, standings and news and that sort of thing. Um, we're going to move on to the Red Sox right now and obviously they are dealing with um, an injury that you know we talked about last week with with Chris Sale having to miss probably the first couple months of the season so here's another team you know dealing with an injury but undoubtedly have to adapt and I think you know it'll be interesting to see who steps up you know I think they're putting a lot of faith into Nate Evaldi and Nick Pavetta who I thought you know, last year did really well. I thought Ivaldi really came on strong at the end of last season. So I think the Red Sox are hoping, you know, he can kind of tap into that and keep the rotation in a good spot um, before Chris Sale does return, you know, whenever that is. And so I think when you think about the front end of the rotation, you know, obviously there's really no qualms over, you know, who's going to be the number one, who's going to kind of be that one, two, three, the back end of the rotation, you know, that was kind of interesting um, because I think Tanner Houck is, you know, supposed to be um, in the rotation to start the year. And I would say that he's not necessarily had the best spring training, but I think you also, you take spring training with a grain of salt. You know, I think you don't overreact to players doing very well or very poorly. You know, I think it's just, it is what it is. You know, I think sometimes guys just, you know, don't have their stuff and, you know, they they don't have good control. You know, it happens to everyone. You know, I think it happened to Nick Pavetta a couple games ago where he just couldn't find his fastball. And I think, you know, stuff like that's going to happen. But I'm very curious to see, you know, what we see from Hauk out of the gate. Do the Red Sox stick with someone like Michael Waka in the rotation, you know, What's the plan for Rich Hill? Is he going to be that that number five guy? Um, but I think without Sale, it makes it a little more complicated that, okay, 
your back end of the rotation is going to have even more of a spotlight on it that it's like, okay, can they give the Red Sox four, five, six consistent innings? Um, and look, bad starts are going to happen. You're going to give up six, seven runs every once in a while. But I think if the Red Sox can come out of the gate with a pitching staff that can, you know, keep the team afloat, I think they're going to be fine. Um, you know, Rich Hill is a guy who's experienced, obviously he's 42, but he's experienced, you know, you kind of know what you're going to get from him. Um, I would also say something similar for Nick Pavetta, but I think someone like Hauk, someone like Waka, I think those are going to be the two guys that are going to be, are going to, you know, make the biggest difference, whether it's good or bad. I think the Red Sox really can't afford to have them be bad out of the gate because that's going to create a lot of unnecessary problems and a lot of unnecessary pressure. So I think, you know, the rotation specifically, the, the back end guys are going to be the guys that are going to be most interesting uh, to watch. You know, I would say another area that I'm curious about is the outfield. Obviously the Red Sox bringing back Jackie Bradley Jr., letting go Hunter Renfro, who I thought obviously had an outstanding year last year, kind of disappeared in the playoffs, but was someone that likely you were not going to be able to bring back. Uh, the Red Sox obviously bringing back Jackie and, you know, is an elite defensive player. I think that that's pretty clear after watching him, but I think the biggest thing for him is what can he bring offensively and I can't imagine that the Red Sox are going to be expecting a lot of things from him in terms of offense. You know, I think the reason he is here is to play defense. But, you know, with respect to the Red Sox outfield outfield last season, I thought they played pretty well defensively. Um, but I think, you know, it'll be interesting how they approach Jackie Bradley against lefties. You know, and I think that there's already conversation that he may be sitting against lefties and who the Red Sox stick in right field. Is it someone like J.D. Martinez? Is it someone like Rob Refsteiner who probably who will make the roster and will probably be that fourth outfielder? Um, you may remember him as um, an extra infielder, outfielder uh, for the Yankees. So it seems like he will be in the mix. He, he will be in the mix. Uh, Franchi Cordero probably will be in the mix as well. Uh, to be called up every once in a while. But curious about J.D. Martinez. Do they really want him playing the outfield? And, you know, are they going to be facing lefties that often that, you know, does it really matter if J.D. is in the outfield? But I'll be honest, he's not really the guy I want to see in the outfield. Um, I'm going to be curious to see if they do anything interesting with um, Christian Arroyo because I think, obviously, he won't be starting at second pace. Is he a guy that they look to you know, play the outfield. Someone like Bobby Dahlbeck, who I think is impressing the Red Sox with his athleticism in spring training. Could he be someone that they try in the outfield? But I guess I'd be surprised. Um, but I think as it stands right now, the Red Sox outfield looks like Verdugo, Kike Hernandez, and then Jackie Bradley Jr., who I think offensively, we know what Verdugo can do. I think he's a guy that could really help the Red Sox if he has a hot start to the season. And, you know, Kike, I think we were all pretty pretty amazed at what he did in the playoffs. But I think looking at the type of player that he is historically, he's not really someone that you can expect to, you know, continue that type of postseason success into the regular season. But who knows? Um, but I think the Red Sox, when you look at what they can do offensively with Story, Devers, Bogarts, J.D. Martinez, there's going to need to be at least one other bat that, you know, emerges and steps up and can produce at a high level, whether that's Verdugo, Hernandez, or um, Dahlbeck. And I think, you know, one of those bats could really make a, a huge, huge difference for this team. Um, so I think before we move on, I wanted to take a look at uh, the Red Sox opening schedule. Well, actually, we'll take a quick look at their remaining spring training schedule have games against Pittsburgh, Atlanta on uh, tomorrow and then Wednesday, and then they will play Minnesota Thursday, Tampa Bay Friday, Pittsburgh and Atlanta again Saturday and Sunday, and then their final 
uh, spring training games are Monday and Tuesday of next week. And then take a quick look at their regular season schedule. Uh, just to open the first half, I'll probably be talking about this more when I speak to um, Evan Greasing later this week. But the Red Sox open the year with uh, six road games, three in New York, and then three in Detroit. And then we'll return to Fenway Park for the season opener on Friday the 15th against the Minnesota Twins. That will be a four-game series, so they'll get to play the Twins two more times in spring training, and then they will uh, play the Twins in their home opener. Red Sox and Twins pretty uh, familiar with each other with the uh, spring training facilities right next to each other. So going to be curious to see how the Red Sox come out of the gate. Obviously, a first opening opening three-game series against the Yankees is going to uh, – it's going to make things very interesting, so I'm very excited to see that. Um, and then a couple games against the Detroit Tigers. They were pretty bad last year, but who knows? You know, there are always teams that come out of the gate really hot that you don't expect. So curious to see how that shakes out. But then the Red Sox do have division opponents the rest of the month. You look at Toronto. They play Toronto twice, uh, Tampa Bay, and then Baltimore. So a lot of division opponents to open up, so a tremendous opportunity for the Red Sox to kind of get off on the right foot against these division division opponents, because you can bet the AL East is not going to be easy uh, by any stretch of the imagination this year. So, you know, you think about what you think about what the Yankees can do offensively. You think about what Toronto can do offensively. Tampa Bay is always a really good team. So, you know, that's four teams right there that could realistically be challenging for the playoffs obviously there are going to be 12 playoff spots this year as opposed to 10 um, i'm not sure how that is going to work out you know i believe that it will probably be you know three division winners and then three teams with the next best record that will play like a two or three game series i'm not sure how that's going to work uh, obviously we'll take a look at that so you know we know what the what the rules or what the format is going to be for the playoffs but that does make things interesting that you know there will be one extra playoff spot but yeah that AL East is going to be absolutely ridiculous um, so it's pretty imperative for the Red Sox to get off to a good start um, in the regular season so obviously we'll be talking more with um, Evan Greasing later this week we'll do a uh, season preview taking a look at some players to watch um you know, storylines, you know, where we expect this team to be by the end of the season, maybe get into how many wins they'll, how many wins they'll have, um, you know, who might go to the all-star game and things like that. So very much looking forward to that conversation. You guys can listen, listen to that uh, on Friday. So with that being said, I think we'll move on, talk a little bit about the Patriots. Obviously the news a couple days ago, Malcolm Butler has re-signed, so he has returned. The butler has returned to New England, so um, I'm pretty excited about this. You know, Malcolm obviously was a guy that stepped away from the NFL last season due to personal reasons, did not play. So, you know, I think that there can there are obviously legitimate concerns, you know, about what his physical what what he physically looks like. You know, after being away from the game for a year, you know, you would think that he's kept himself in good shape, you know, that it's not going to be a total shock to his system to, you know, be hitting guys in training camp. But I think that, you know, it can work as a negative that, oh, he hasn't played, but you can also use it as a positive that he's going to come in with a chip on his shoulder, you know, with the belief that everyone in the NFL, you know, gave up on him and... You know, he's trying to make a comeback. And I think, you know, the Patriots are always bringing in guys that have chips on their shoulder uh, for whatever reason. You know, if it's years ago bringing in someone like Corey Dillon or bringing in someone like Randy Moss where they feel like, you know, they have a lot to prove. And I think there's, there's no reason that Malcolm Butler can't be exactly like those guys and make a difference um, because I still think that he can play at a high level, you know, he had four interceptions the last year that he played 17 interceptions in his career. So he's a guy who obviously, you know, is a pretty good defender. 
you know, 14 passes defensed in the last season that he played, um, had 100 tackles. So I don't think he's going to get 100 tackles on the Patriots, but I think he's a guy who brings a skill set that I think they can really use if the Patriots are indeed going more into zone. He's a guy that I think fits better into that than J.C. Jackson. No disrespect to J.C. Jackson, but I think he was more of a one-on-one coverage guy that you know you match up against a, a team's best receiver. Ultimately, the Patriots decided to not pay that price, you know, which is obviously their right. But I think, you know, if they're thinking that they're going to go into more zone defense um, and try to get some guys that are fast and guys that can react quickly, I think that, you know, that might be the direction that they're looking, that the Patriots are looking to go more zone. Because you look at you look at what Buffalo did in the two games they beat the Patriots. Patriots played man primarily in that game, and they got shredded. So I think going to kind of a different type of defense, you know, might help them out. And someone like Butler, who, you know, can be a good one-on-one guy, but can also drop into zone, I think, you know, gives them another guy who's pretty versatile. And I think... That's what they're going to try to go for with this year's defense, to try to be as versatile as they can so that they can, you know, rush the passer with guys like Matt Judon, but they can also be comfortable, you know, playing man in terms of the defensive backs or playing zone. So obviously I think it's a good signing, you know, a lot of incentives in this deal. I think it's a lot of a kind of a prove-it deal to be like, okay, Show us what you got, Malcolm. You know, can you still be a useful player on our team? And he obviously, I think, does have a lot of things going for him. You know, chip on his shoulder after missing a year, but also someone who's familiar with this team. You know, played uh, 59 games with the Patriots, and that doesn't even include playoffs. So 70 games when you include playoffs. Um is a guy who understands the Patriots defense, you know, understands what they're going to try to do. And I think, you know, I think that he and Bill Belichick bygones or bygones or bygones, you know, I think if there was still some issue, he wouldn't have signed here. So, you know, I think it's a good fit and it's a good signing. And I think that if it does signal a Patriots change to his own defense, I think that that's great because I think that's going to help them a lot more going against some of these, you know, speedy receivers that they'll be playing against this season. Um, so curious to see how Malcolm does in, in, uh, in training camp in the summer. And then ultimately in the regular season, if he does make the roster. So, you know, free agency obviously still going on, still a bunch of guys that are still not signed. Um, so I thought I'd just take a look at some guys that are still that are still available, Julio Jones, I think, uh, Bobby Wagner, Jarvis Landry, Tyron Matthew, you know, some of the big, big name guys. Stephon Gilmore still hasn't been signed. Jason Pierre-Paul, you know, a lot of names on here, a lot of kind of older guys that I think, not that teams aren't really sure about their age, but I think, you know, maybe not sure about guys' speed, but I think it is interesting when you look at these names, it's a lot of, you know, big names, you know, Jerry Hughes, Joe Hayden, Akeem Hicks, um, Will Fuller. I mean, I think the Patriots could use some of these guys, but I also think, um, oh, and, you know, Odell Beckham Jr., obviously. I think, could the Patriots use some of these veteran guys? Sure, but I think a lot of the negativity coming with this team in terms of how they're approaching free agency has a lot to do with them not signing big-name players, and it's just kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, players are big names, but what do they really have? Like, did you really want to give Von Miller a six-year deal? Like, I think, sure, he's still got ability, but I think, you know, the Patriots are pretty frugal with their money, and sure, they spent a lot of money last year, but they had a lot of space. And it's just like, it seems it just seems very strange to me that this year, more than other years, there's a lot more scrutiny on what they're not doing. And I understand that there are a lot of teams that have brought in a lot of talent but that doesn't always mean anything you know Tyreek Hill going from Kansas City to to Miami do you really trust Tua to be a game-changing quarterback the way that Mahomes is you know it's 
you know, you have to see that. You have to see that in action before we start making statements that the Patriots are the 10th best team in the AFC, just based on the fact that other teams have made moves. You know, it, it's March, you know, you don't, you don't go to the playoffs. You don't win championships in March, you know? So it's like, I don't know. It just seems funny to me that we're continuing to do this. And we kind of seem to do this year after year, you know, and people even did it last year by being like, oh, the Patriots are spending all this money, you know? They're, they're not going to be that good. They're just, you know, overpaying guys. And it's like, it's funny because it seems like a lot of people want you to overpay for guys this offseason. So I don't know. It's just interesting how that how that works. Um, I mean, I think, could the Patriots use someone like Odell Beckham? Absolutely. You know, I think if he would be willing to come to the Patriots, the Patriots could use him, you know. But I think not expect that he's going to be this game-changer receiver. You know, if they want to bring him in and if they want to draft someone like Wandale Moore uh, from Kentucky in the draft, do they want to draft someone like John Mechie in the fourth round? I mean, I think that is the smarter way to go in terms of drafting a wide receiver than, you know, drafting someone in the first round when I think there are more pressing needs on your roster than wide receiver. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they approach the draft as it gets closer. You know, what do we hear in terms of who the Patriots are trying to bring in. I mean, I highly doubt we're going to hear anything because the Patriots tend to play those things pretty close to the chest, but it will definitely be something uh, to keep your eye on. Um, And also cornerback, I think, is also a position that I could see them bringing in someone else, kind of like they brought in Malcolm Butler. You know, a lot of people are saying, oh, bring in Gilmore. Well, I don't know. I feel like the wound is still fresh after the Patriots, you know, traded him last season. So, you know, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Um, It is very interesting that he has not been signed. You know, I think that he, I don't want to say, you know, bet on himself exactly, but, you know, I think was someone who I think wanted to get paid, you know, kind of similar to how J.C. Jackson got paid, but no one really wants to give him that contract. And I think, you know, he's, he's 31 years old, and I think, you know, kind of overplayed his hand a little bit. Um, but if he does, if he would be open to, ret- to a return to the Patriots, you know, I wouldn't hate that. I mean, I still think the Patriots do need to draft someone and draft someone who, you know, is fast, someone who is good, you know, recognition at the line of scrimmage. Um yeah, someone like that. So I think certainly there's still a lot of, you know, room for changes on this team. But as I said to someone else, you know, until the Patriots are playing football games in September, you know, I don't really want to worry about what other teams are doing because I think you start doing that and you start getting distracted from, you know, what your job is as a team. And the Patriots have never been a team like that. They've never been a team that's going to make moves just because other teams are doing it. You know, I think they're in a pretty good spot. They have a pretty good track record of, you know, playing it the way that they all, they've they always played things. So um, I think that's probably going to be it for the Patriots before I go off into another rant that, uh, you know, involves people's expectations of this team. So uh, we will move on. We'll obviously get to some uh, NHL and NBA notes first of all or before before we do that we're going to get to uh, March Madness updates for both the men and the women obviously the men's final four was decided over the weekend with uh, Duke Kansas North Carolina and Villanova winning their respective uh, regions you know obviously the the big upset came um, or the big upsets came earlier in the or last later last week when Gonzaga and Arizona both lost, and so we had two number one seeds go down: Arkansas and Houston beating those teams, but both of those teams then lost in the regional final to Duke and Villanova, and then Kansas and North Carolina yesterday, um, pretty easily dispatching both of their opponents um, with St. Peter's run coming to an end against North Carolina. There's always a great Cinderella story every year, and that was uh, definitely not a team that I think anyone saw going this far. 
uh, pretty impressive showing by St. Peter's with uh, wins over Kentucky, Purdue, and Murray State uh, before losing to North Carolina yesterday. But a tremendous run, you know, and I think there's something I was thinking about while watching that game last night. You know, that's a run that I think does that school even, you know, sniff another run like that in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years? It just is so fun that, you know, those kids can can tell their kids, can, you know, tell those stories the rest of their lives for how far they got in March Madness when no one saw that coming. So uh, that is always such an interesting thing when you think about schools that make Cinderella runs and schools that probably will never do will never do something like that again. Um, but we'll always have, you know, those memories of beating some of the best teams in the country. So uh, tremendous props to St. Peter's um, and the job that they did in the tournament. Um, you look at the teams that made the Final Four, you know, I think a lot of people would argue that there's not a whole lot of surprises in that field. You know, UNC, I think, probably is a surprise um, just looking at them as an eight seed, but I think based on how they played in the entire tournament, they're a team that, in my opinion, actually has been the most impressive team in the tournament um, with what they've been able to do offensively, how good they've been defensively. Did have a slight hiccup in that Baylor game, blowing a 25-point lead, but that was also a game in which they lost one of their better players um, to an ejection. So they will go and play Duke in the national semifinal in New Orleans uh, Villanova and Kansas playing in the other semifinal and Duke UNC. I mean, seriously, one of the best, if not the best rivalry in college basketball. Um, and they will go at it and coach K potentially his last game. Obviously Duke will be out for revenge after UNC beat them in their final home game this season at Cameron indoor. So that's going to be a very highly emotional game. Very excited for that one. Uh, Villanova, Kansas, should be a really good game. Villanova losing Justin Moore to a torn Achilles, I believe, in the game against Houston. So unfortunately, he won't be available. So that's kind of a big blow for Villanova. But if there's a team that can overcome a massive injury and still play hard, it's Villanova. I personally think they're the best coach team um, in America. And I think are really not going to miss a beat in this game. You know, you have someone like Gillespie and how well he's played in the tournament. You have someone like Jermaine Samuels. Both of those guys have been around. They know what's expected. You know, each player on that team knows their role and knows it really well, and they execute it really well. So I think, you know, it's an interesting matchup for Kansas because I think to this point, you know, if you take away the Miami game, Kansas really had not played all that well in the entire tournament. You know, look, you look at the games against Creighton and Providence. You know, Abaji really struggled offensively. They were struggling to find an offensive identity. And then, you know, it seemed like the floodgates opened for them in the second half against Miami yesterday. And I think just based on the way that they're playing, I don't think that there's a team in America that can beat them right now. So... Personally, I'm going to take Kansas, and I'm going to take UNC to beat Duke again. Um, I just think that they've been playing at a, at a very high level. Uh, Duke also, though, I would say, has played really well in late-game situations. You know, and I think, you know, it comes. It probably is going to come down to who makes a big shot late in the game, but I like UNC. I think they've been playing with a chip on their shoulder in the entire tournament, so I think you'll see Kansas and UNC in the championship. But obviously, we will update you guys and come back to you guys with a preview of the championship game uh, next Monday. So we're going to take a look at the women's tournament. Two teams clinching their spot to the Final Four yesterday. Uh, Stanford and North Carolina winning their games, or South Carolina, excuse me, winning their games respectively. South Carolina with a 30-point win over Creighton who were kind of the, the Cinderella team of the uh, of the women's tournament as they took down second-ranked Iowa and third-ranked Iowa State in consecutive games. Um, so a great run for them. South Carolina, obviously the number one overall seed, and then Stanford, a very good team that I believe won the championship last year, if I'm not mistaken. And so you have two games tonight. 
finals in the Bridgeport region between NC State and UConn. That's tonight at 7. And then Louisville against Michigan in the Wichita region. And that final is at 9 o'clock tonight. So both of those teams vying for spots, or all four of those teams vying for spots in the women's Final Four that will be in Minneapolis. The men's Final Four is in New Orleans. So we'll take a quick look at some U.S. soccer stuff before we uh, take a look at the NBA and the NHL. Um, I apologize, guys. I really dropped the ball last week and totally forgot about the uh, U.S. men and their final qualifying window for the World Cup. Um, Team USA tying with Mexico on, I think it was Thursday night last week, uh, tying with Mexico 0-0. And then the U.S. had an emphatic win last night against Panama 5-1 in, you know, which for all intents and purposes, the uh, U.S. men's team will be going to the World Cup, I think, you know, bearing some kind of crazy, some kind of crazy result that happens Wednesday night. But that seems very unlikely. Uh, Team USA in the second position currently in the qualifying standings, top three automatically go through, and then the fourth place team goes to a playoff. So Team USA currently tied with Mexico with 25 points in the standings. But the U.S. has a six-goal goal differential over Mexico and has a 10-goal goal differential over Costa Rica. So Team USA will, I think, at least has clinched a spot in the playoff. But it seems incredibly likely that they will be going, you know, in that top three. Is it first? Is it second? Or is it second? Or is it third? Remains to be seen. But, you know, bearing a... A loss by six goals. Uh, Team USA will be going to Qatar. So it seems pretty likely. You know, they've been playing pretty well. I think for the majority of this qualifying, they've obviously had some slip-ups, some games that they've not played as well. But I think the impressive thing last night was just how emphatic that win was. That Team USA coming into this game, knowing how important it was. And you have your best player, Christian Pulisic, putting on a, you know, tour de force and leaving no doubt that the Team USA was going to win that game. And I think, you know, it's it's a new era for, for U.S. soccer. I think that, you know, and John Veneziano and I talked about this during the last uh, qualifying window, that, you know, it's a team that's kind of embracing the youth and is embracing players playing in other countries and playing in other leagues and playing against top competition. And, you know, it helps season these guys. You know, you look at Pulisic, who's played um, in, in Chelsea, the la- who's played at Chelsea the last few years, you know, really getting an opportunity to prove himself against the best competition in the world. And then you come in in these qualifying games and he's playing at an unbelievably high level. So a tremendous win for Team USA. And I really think it puts them on the map to be like, okay, we can compete with the best teams in the world. Now, obviously, these teams in the in the CONCACAF region, you know, they're not necessarily the best teams in the world, but I think the team, team USA could have easily folded in that game last night and could have been a team that, you know, thought that the moment was going to be too big, but just a tremendous performance for them last night. And I think should give a lot of you excitement about this team and going to the World Cup and what they can accomplish. And I think, you know, really embracing the youth, really embracing these young, talented players who, you know, I think have had to work for a lot of, a lot of things in their careers, you know, not to say that the teams of the past have not had to work hard, but I think that you think about where these players are playing, whether it's in Germany and Italy or England, you know, and I think it's just a, it's a good time to be a U.S. soccer fan, I'll tell you that, 
Um, and I think we'll see how the U.S. does against Costa Rica. It's going to be a tough game on the road, but, you know, they should be fine. You know, I don't anticipate that they lose by six goals, but I think you still want to go into this game and try to win and try to, you know, build off of the good things that you did last night. So hat trick for Pulisic, uh, just a tremendous game, and I think a game where they really needed their uh, superstars. And, yeah, Felicic confidently stepping up to that uh, penalty spot in the first half. And then, you know, scores one of the most unbelievable highlight reel goals I've ever seen uh, later in the game. So I think just a tremendous win for Team USA last night. And I think uh, all but erasing those demons from four years ago when they, you know, didn't make the World Cup. But a tremendous win for them last night. Be curious to see how they follow that up on Wednesday night, 9 o'clock in Costa Rica. So I think before we, before we let you guys go, we'll update you guys on the NHL and the NBA. Take a look at the NHL. Todd McClellan, the coach for the LA Kings, will coach his 1,000th NHL game tonight. Uh, Jake Sanderson was a top pick for Ottawa in last year's draft or excuse me, number five pick in the 2020 draft. Um, played with Team USA at the Olympics and signed a three-year entry-level deal with Senators. And then take a look at some of the games tonight. Carolina and Washington, 7 o'clock on NHL Network. Vancouver, St. Louis at 7.30. Buffalo, Chicago at 8.30. Arizona, Edmonton, 9.30, and then Seattle and the Kings at 10.30. So I'll take a quick look at the standings. Bruins, obviously, currently in that first wildcard position, thanks to Toronto's tiebreaker over the Bruins. But you look where the Bruins are in the division, 87 points. Toronto also with 87, and Tampa Bay with 88. So 17 games to go for all three of those teams. Things could get very, very interesting in that division. I mean, I think... Ultimately, the Bruins want to get into those division spots so they can avoid having to play a top seed, whether it's Florida, Carolina, or any other team. Um, but I think there still is a lot that can be decided. You know, you even look at Pittsburgh, Carolina, and the Rangers, the top three in the Metro. There still is a lot that can change with a lot of games left. So as it stands right now, Carolina in first place in the Metro, followed by Pittsburgh and the Rangers. In the Atlantic, it's Florida, Tampa Bay, and Toronto, and then Boston and Washington in the two wildcard spots. In the Western Conference, Colorado still leads the NHL 98 points in the President's Trophy race. Uh, they lead the Central 14 points over Minnesota, and then Nashville is in third place. In the Pacific, Calgary, Los Angeles, and Edmonton, the top three spots. And then St. Louis and Vegas with the wild card spots. Dallas, Winnipeg, and Vancouver are very close in the wild card standing. So that will be very curious to see how that shakes out the rest of the season. Vegas, Winnipeg, and Vancouver have played a lot of games. Dallas has not. Dallas actually has four games in hand on Vegas and three on Winnipeg and Vancouver. So is a distinct possibility that they could jump in thanks to their games in hand. So that will definitely be something to keep an eye on. As we approach talking about the NBA, um, Kyrie Irving is now available to play home games at the Barclays Center after the uh, vaccine mandate, I believe, was lifted, or I'm not exactly sure what happened, but... Um, that's not really something I want to talk about. I'll be perfectly honest. I think we all kind of know how I would react to that. Um, but, you know, they're just going to kind of leave it alone. Um, the Lakers with a held a big lead last night, and the Pelicans came back to win. So the Lakers in a really tough spot. LeBron hurt his ankle last night, um, so he could miss some time as well. Uh, we'll take a look at the games tonight. There are plenty of games on the NBA schedule tonight. Celtics and Raptors, obviously, at 7.30 in Toronto. Denver, Charlotte, Orlando, Cleveland, Atlanta, Indiana, 
all three of those games at 7 o'clock, and then at 7.30, Sacramento and Miami, Chicago and New York. And then 8 o'clock, the Spurs and Rockets. And then 8 o'clock on NBA TV, the Warriors take on the Grizzlies. And then Oklahoma City takes on Portland. So I'll take a look at the standings. Celtics obviously tied for first uh, tied for first place in the Eastern Conference officially. Unofficially, they have an advantage over the Heat because of a tiebreaker. Um, but then you look at the other teams, the Bucks and the Sixers, just a half game back of first place. So things are going to get really, really interesting over the next two weeks or so as we get closer to the playoffs. The Bulls are in fifth place, followed by the Raptors in sixth, and then Cleveland in seventh, Charlotte eighth, Brooklyn ninth, and the Hawks are in tenth. So could be a lot of interesting moving parts in the Eastern Conference in the play-in and then also in the top six. In the Western Conference, you have... Memphis, who has clinched a playoff berth, um, and the Suns have clinched the best league record. So the Suns lead the conference by nine games, Grizzlies in second, Warriors in third, followed by Dallas, Utah, and Denver, and then in the play-in spots, Minnesota, the Clippers, the Pelicans, and the Lakers, with the Spurs just one game back of the play-in. So things can get very interesting in the Western Conference for the Lakers um, if they don't start playing better. So... Obviously, the Celtics in a great spot, but the injury to Rob Williams is uh, really not ideal. But we'll see what the Celtics can do when they um, have to deal with some adversity. You know, hey, there's no such thing as a sports season without adversity. Um, And I think that the Celtics have proven that they can play at a high level. But I think we'll really see what they're made of in the next few games. How do they respond by, or how do they respond to losing one of their best players, but also a guy that a lot of guys in the locker room really enjoyed being around. So, you know, yeah, things things are going to get tough, but I think it's all about how you respond, and I think that's what I'll, I'll leave you guys with uh, for the podcast this week. Um, obviously excited to get Evan Greasing on the pod later this week. Great to talk some Red Sox with him. We have actual games coming up. And as always, you can listen to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Music or Apple Podcasts. And you can follow our socials on Twitter and on Facebook. All right, everyone, have a good rest of your week.